0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Poets get to the heart of what we're thinking and feeling, so we've established a tradition on this program. Each year about this time, we look back and look ahead with poetry. This year, we're featuring conversation with and poetry from Utah Poet Laureate Lisa Bickmore, along with poets Michael Sauter and Ben Gunsberg. Lisa Bickmore, in addition to being uh, Utah's Poet Laureate, is Professor Emeritus of English at Salt Lake Community College. Michael Sauter is Professor of English and Affiliated Faculty Member in Yoga Studies and Religious Studies Programs at Utah State University. He teaches yoga philosophy at Transcend Yoga Studio in Logan. Ben Gunsberg is Associate Professor of English at Utah State University. Each of them has uh, various volumes of poetry out, and uh, we welcome them in. Uh, Lisa Bickmore, do we have you on the line?
1: Yes, you do. Hi. Uh, great. Good morning.
0: You, uh, welcome back to the program. We had you on about this time last year. Thanks for coming back.
1: Yes,
0: thank you. Um, well, Michael Sauter, uh, do we have you on the line? Oh, let's see. Uh, uh Michael Sauter, do we have you? I guess we'll have to work on that, that phone line. Uh, ben Gunsberg, do we have you with us? Uh, looks like we'll have to work on on those. We start with Lisa Bickmore. Um, so uh, remind us what uh, what does Utah's poet laureate do, and what what are your goals?
1: Um, thank you for asking that. Yeah, so the U- Utah poet laureate is a representative of the literary arts through the state and does what he or she can to promote literary activity and appreciation and access. Um, all around the state. So this past year, I've been um, I've been lots and lots of places, talking to people ranging from school children to adults, um, doing poetry readings, but also workshops. Um, every poet laureate in Utah proposes a project, and my project is publishing um, limited edition chapbooks of poets' work around the state. And so right now, I'm working with. Uh, more than 20 different authors, um, all of them uh, various ages and levels of experience, but all of them fine poets. Um, and uh, we, are, we are in the process of taking the first three of those chapbooks to print, and um, I will be working with the authors to schedule community events to launch their books. And it's a very exciting project for me because I get to talk with lots of poets about their work Um, give them feedback, but also learn, you know, what poetry is doing in their communities and support that every way I can.
0: Yeah, sounds like some great uh, projects. What is poetry doing in in the communities? What what can poetry do? What does it do, do you think?
1: Well, one of the things that's interesting to me is to see the ways that people um, form community around poetry. So, for instance, I've talked to several writing groups. Uh, You know, there's a writing group in Helper, Utah that I think has been um, established for a good amount of time. Uh, There's, I don't know if you know the poet Nancy Takis. She uh, taught at what was then CEU and uh, has done lots of literary activism working with, uh, running a little reading series, working with writers of all all ages there. And so I went to Helper and saw the way that um, friendships, in addition to, you know, the literary arts, become, you know, sort of nourishing and um, community building. And let's see, I uh, have had the chance to talk to and be around um, people who run community-centered open mics. Like, lots and lots of young people come to those kinds of events, and that may be their first uh, experience with literary community, but um, they establish uh, lifelong friendships and support for each other as writers, but also as human beings. Just one more. I I got the chance uh, last spring to be at um, a poetry slam, uh, the Salt City Slam up here in Salt Lake. Uh, I was the featured reader, but I, I got to hang around for the slam and see how slams work. And it was really incredible to me to see the sort of um, you know, connection between younger and older people, um, people with all different points of access for poetry, uh, reciting and delivering and performing their poetry for each other. And it's a competition, but it's also, uh, since it's ongoing, people get to see each other in various uh, stages of development as writers. It's pretty exciting, honestly.
0: Yeah, that is exciting. Uh, Can anyone write poetry?
1: I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I was just talking with the previous poet laureate yesterday, Paisley Rekdal, and she said that when she went into schools, she would say, we're not going to we're not going to write poems. We're going to play games. And I think that's one way to think about uh, writing is that it's a kind of game playing with words. And I think one of the most important things you can do if you want to write, or just as a human being, is to become a person who notices, who pays attention. And if you notice and pay attention, and that means looking outward, but also listening and reading and paying attention to words, those two things give you pretty good odds, I think, for um, learning to write poem objects, let's put it that way. Um, I don't know that everyone is going to be, uh, you know, become a poet in the sense that they publish their work and and center a great deal of activity or act, uh, their energy around writing poetry. But um, I think most people can write poems. Yes, I do think that.
0: Um, did did uh, how did you first get involved in poetry?
1: ways. I had a great high school English teacher, Eugene Casper, and uh, this was in Southern California. And he loved poetry and he taught poetry. So I had a lot of exposure to really terrific modernist, maybe late Victorian modernist poetry and modernist poetry. So I learned to understand and access that form of expression um as a teenager, and those things those were really invaluable experiences to me. Um, I wanted to be a poet at that point uh, from reading t s. Eliot and Robert Frost and Ezra Pound and um, and you know, later then when I became an English major, I still had that interest in poetry. So you know I that was a that was a a really good space to start to care about poetry and what poetry could do as a pro as opposed to, um, prose, fiction, or essays. Um, I loved I loved poetry. Um, you know, this the, or verse at least. When I was a, a kid, my family had you know encyclopedias, but we also had a, a set of books called Childcraft, and there was a, a volume that was dedicated to verse and poetry. And so that was also a place where I learned to care about lines and sounds and you know the sort of piercing insight that. Poems could deliver so,
0: and the fun—the fun of poetry. If you just joined us, it's uh, poetry for the new year, uh, new tradition here on uh, Utah Public Radio and Access Utah. Um, we unfortunately uh, have some phone problems; uh, half of our phone system is down, apparently. <laughs> so uh, oh, yeah, here, here's what here. we're here's what we're going to do to involve everybody. Um, it, we, we definitely want to involve Michael Souter and Ben Gunsberg, along with Lisa Bickmore. Uh, we've moved over to z- a Zoom call now due to our phone problems. And it uh, looks like we do have on the line, I could see uh, Michael Sauter. Do we have you, Michael?
2: Yes, I'm here. Hi, uh,
0: apologize hi, for apologize for the phone problems there, but uh, glad no to have worries. you on. Um,
2: yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Looks like we uh, have uh, Ben Gunsberg with us, do we? Yes. Okay, great. Thanks for uh, coming on. And Lisa McMorre is uh, back with us on, uh, on Zoom, looks like. I am. am. Okay. Looks like we got a bit of an echo on on your side there. Um, uh, Lisa?
1: I just turned the phone off. Okay. Great.
0: (laughs) Very good. Okay. Well, uh, I'll ask uh, let me start with you, Michael Satter, but ask a couple questions that I asked of uh, Lisa Bickmore earlier in the program here. Um, Great. So, uh, how did you get into poetry, Michael?
2: Uh, Gosh, it's, uh, of course, it's a long story. I think when I was in high school, uh, we read this poem by William Wordsworth called The World is Too Much With Us, and uh, the world is too much with us, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, little we see in nature that is ours, we've given our hearts away, a sordid boon, and I just read that, and I thought, gosh, that's just everything I believe right there in that poem. And uh, so I, I got really fascinated with poetry at that point. And then it was just kind of a long uh, kind of process. I went to law school and spent seven years in law. and uh, But poetry was calling me back the whole time. I always tell all my students that poetry is a dangerous thing. It could ruin a perfectly good career. <laughs> so I left law and went back and got my PhD and then uh, moved out here and i got hired as a poet and so i just got to make poetry my life so i feel very grateful unfortunately
0: uh we've had you on michael for the program on yoga program on meditation Uh, how did you get into those things and uh, do, do they do they appear in your poetry
2: uh yeah they sure do uh around the same time well when i was in college i got into Uh, meditation and yoga. This was back in the late 1970s. So quite a long time ago, I became a yoga meditation teacher back then. And um, I've been a lifelong student of Sanskrit. And uh, my poetry over the years has kind of veered more in a uh, spiritual kind of direction. And so my meditation practice and yoga practice has been a big part of that and uh, my newest collection of poetry that's just uh, got accepted by a press recently is um, a collection of poems where each poem is based on one of the letters of the sanskrit alphabet so uh it's been super fun uh collection to write i've been spending my time in the sanskrit dictionary and uh just you know turning to the next page and looking at all the words under each letter until something inspires me so uh, it's been a super fun process and and like you say, I mean kind of like the yoga, spirituality, mindfulness, Buddhism, all that has been running through all my poems. but in this new collection, it's totally there those two things are totally merged together, so yeah, I'm really happy about it and excited about it.
0: I, I well remember our, our program on meditation. You suggested, hey, let's let's do a program of meditation in the middle of which we we you did a meditation, which yeah. which on the radio is called dead air. Uh, so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was exactly. pretty nervous about that, but I think it worked out. I think it, we we yeah, proved we could so. do it on the radio. I,
2: I think it was a caller who asked that I lead a meditation. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah. And I just wanted to thank you because. Uh, The first time I was on your show was when my first book of poetry came out a long time ago. And so, yeah, I'm just really grateful. Thank you.
0: Well, we appreciate it as well. Uh, Ben Gunsberg, um, uh, we've had you on the program as well. Um, How did you get into poetry?
3: Yeah, well, um, actually, I I published my first poem when I was in fifth grade. And I I can't say that I was into poetry at that point, but we had an assignment um, to write a haiku. And uh, this teacher who uh, I always thought she didn't like me very much. Um, but, uh, she, anyway, she chose one of my poems among the class, uh, the the works in the class to put into the newspaper. So I don't know if that got me into poetry. I remember sort of, sort of shrugging my shoulders and, but I do remember being really interested in the haiku form and trying to kind of fit, sort of say something in a very, uh, in a very, uh, compact way. Um, and then in high school, I remember doing a, doing a writing a paper on william blake and i stayed up all night uh thinking about the poem uh the tiger 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 burning bright in the force of the night what a mortal hand or eye frame my fearful symmetry anyway that poem uh it goes on but um so i and i was sort of angry with myself i was thinking why why on earth would you stay up all night you know writing this paper thinking about the poem and it wasn't just because the paper was due i really was engaged and um, and then I, I I sort of you know I was doing a lot of other things uh, and then in college actually I studied abroad in Ireland and I took a my first poetry writing workshop uh, when I was a junior and um, and then I just loved it and and sort of bought my first book of poems uh, with my own money a book uh, called Wintering Out by Seamus Heaney uh, who would later go on and win the Nobel Prize in literature and um, I think I I just uh I just sort of fell in love with it and then I went on and did an MFA at the at the University of Alabama um and did a PhD at the University of Michigan and and then was hired here so I've been I've been writing poems sort of on and off uh since then and of course now as Michael said you know the job uh requires that we're writing and publishing poems which is just a great delight
0: um, so, uh, Ben Gunsberg, I want to, I want to read, uh, just a portion of a review of your, I think this is of your, of your collection, uh, mm-hmm. Welcome Dangerous Life. You have this on your website, by the way, bengunsberg.com. This kind of gets into, uh, I'll have you respond to this. Uh, it's, it's praise for your book. So that's great. Uh, this is Maurice Manning, uh, but it gets into what poetry is. So I'm just quoting Maurice Manning here, talking about Ben Gunsberg's poems. Uh, he says, some of these poems happen two beats before a vital event some of uh, after these some of these poems happen two beats after something vital has occurred between these times is the breath and commotion of real poetry a mix of recognition and wonder knowledge and discovery uh, and to me that's at least a description of what uh what poetry is and does
3: yeah thanks for reading that um i yeah i totally agree i mean morris is a brilliant poet and um you know so so pleased that he was willing to write that uh that review but um yeah i totally i totally agree i think for me of those words you know i think wonder and discovery are really key um i don't go into a poem knowing what i'm going to write about it's it's usually early in the morning and um i just you know sort of something catches my attention my ear and i start writing and the poem is um, is an act of discovery the poem discovers itself and often I figure out something I want to say or I've wanted to say for some time um, not as a declaration or a kind of argument but usually sort of weighing um, weighing uh, a number of ideas or images um, and and thinking how they kind of fit together um so, yes, I, I really agree that, that that really does kind of get at something essential about, uh, about poetry.
0: Well, we've been talking about poetry. I'd love to hear some poems or at least a poem from each of you, at least a bit more. Do you have something you'd like to, to read for us?
1: Unmuting myself. Yes, I do. Uh, this is a poem in a new manuscript that I'm working on and circulating called Self-Portrait with Future Scar. First I remove the cloud at my throat, loop de out of silver wire in a shape like dread, like drift and weather. Then see doctors, three of them, who found the thing there, the little knot, to be palpated by expert hands or aspirated by fine needle or taken by knife. That's a nodule, says the first. The second aspirator asks, how are you doing, ma'am? My neck exposed under a bright lamp, and because of cells, a few too many of the wrong kind, spring fluke, heat flare, the surgeon tells me there's a chance, very small, that we might nick the recurrent laryngeal nerve and thus I might lose my voice for a little while or forever. I need my voice, I tell him, before they drug me. Don't wreck it, before the sleep it's woolly veil. I wake and before I know myself, I struggle with the nurse, so she will not remove my restraints. Then relents, gives me water to sip from a cup, sluicing down. I need my voice, I tell myself in a whisper, for singing, for sharp speaking, for naming the tempest swelling in the sky and everywhere. At the hollow, a strip of white tape delimits the length of the cut, stitches holding edges together where it will knit Dissolve into a thin pale seam, healing. I sit at the window, the red maple unfurling its florid leaves.
0: Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. And th- that's from a upcoming, manu- uh, I guess, collection.
1: Yeah, it's the 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 manuscript is called Bomb, and I'm sending it out and getting a little interest, and hopefully someone will decide that. It's the next thing they must publish. Right?
0: Okay. Oh. All right. Hopefully we'll, we'll look for that. Um, Michael Sauter, uh, just, uh, I'd love to hear a poem from you.
2: Great. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. So this, I just uh, thought I'd read one from my new uh, collection based on the letters of the Sanskrit alphabet, and this is <laughs> the letter I. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. So I for Aiden, 12th letter, pronounced like the Y in sky. The letter is an interjection, a name of Lord Shiva, auspicious one. Indra, a name of the goddess Durga. Indrajala, of magic, sorcery, from Indrajala, Indra's net. In the beginning, Indra, chief of the gods, spread out the cosmos like a great blue net. In each knot, he sewed a jewel of 10,000 facets. In this way, all the jewels reflect all the other jewels. Each created thing holds all the others. This morning, I'm walking home after rain, my son in my arms. Puddles lie around us like blue pieces of sky. Aiden keeps his eyes on me. And I remember how when I was four, I saw my face inside my mother's eyes. At home, we walk along the porch where windows hold our faces in their hands. In his bedroom, carved animals, coins and crayons, stones and cowry shells, all our lives putting the pieces back together.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's from the, what's the new collection called?
2: Uh, it's called Sacred Letters, Sanskrit Yoga and Awakening the Divine.
0: All right. All right.
2: Big title.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> should should mention uh, each of your websites. Each of your website lisabickmore.com, uh michaelsauder.com and bengunsberg.com. Uh so Ben i uh love to hear a poem from you.
3: Oh sure. Um this is a newish poem. Um I thought it would be appropriate uh given the national championship college football this evening, um that I read a football poem. Uh my, Michael and I both attended Michigan, so uh, I guess we have some. Uh, we have something. Uh, we're thinking about this game a little bit. It's a sonnet, which is like a 14-line poem that has some rhymes in it. I should just say before, um, like the first few words of the poem uh, are sort of imply a cadence uh, before the quarterback sort of says hike. There's usually a few words, a kind of code that lets the team know what's going on. So here it is, it's called American Football. Kitty Hawk, doom, star, hike. A snap ignites the drive, two lines collide, green versus white, eagle versus lion. Call the pass a bomb, call it prayer. Either way, our spinning future flies through thinning air, a prolate sphere polar axis greater than equatorial girth. Of course, the the end remains unknown. Who can predict weather's impact on the final score, wind's grip on a spiral's spin as it fervors north to south, west to east above the scrum? Who grasps the stakes of big bets in our gleaming dome, where Hail Mary hope or trick play, so-called statue of liberty means a win for some, while history hollers, guessing the game's rigged or worse done.
0: Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, love love uh, hearing these these poems. Um, we are uh, we're hearing poetry for the new year. Um, And we're hearing from Utah Poet Laureate Lisa Bickmore, along with poets Michael Sauter and Ben Gunsberg. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, more poetry and conversation uh, in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Tom Williams. It's a tradition, uh, has become a tradition here on Utah Public Radio. We, early in the new year, begin the new year with uh, poetry uh, poets really get to the heart of what we're thinking and feeling, and so we look back and look ahead with uh, poetry. Uh, this year we're featuring conversation with and poetry from Utah Poet Laureate Lisa Bickmore and uh, poets Michael Sauter and uh, Ben Gunsberg. So I want to uh, run this question or series of questions past each of you. I'll start with Lisa Bickmore on this. Um, as you encounter, you go around as, as Poet Laureate or maybe, you know, working with your students at Salt Lake Community College in the past, um were there misconceptions that people uh came in with or come in with um fears perhaps i'm not going to understand this uh poetry is too mysterious uh that kind of thing do you encounter that
1: uh sure yeah i think um I, it's sad honestly that i think people sometimes encounter or or, or come to poetry with feeling like it's a, a high bar to understand it or that it's um you know an inherently ridiculous way if you're talking sometimes to high school students to go about writing anything um so yes i think and i do think that people uh have often a a, a sort of constrained notion of what poetry is and what it must do to be poetry so for instance you know the rhyming line for, is a is widely understood to be the the sort of big marker of what constitutes a poem where you know forever what counts as the dense sonic richness of poetry rhyme is only one uh piece of that toolkit um so i for for me as a teacher and you know i mean i think that some of what i do as a poet laureate is an extension of that teacherly life that i that i um occupied for so long um Salt Lake community college one thing is to open it up just to say don't worry about that for now. If, uh, if rhyming is the way you think, great. If that's your jam, go for it. But if it's not, try this or try observing, You know, making really close observations of the, the world you're in, of the things around you and the people around you, and let that be the driver of your, of your writing rather than uh, a, a notion of what something has to do before it can be a poem. I mean, I think the risk in writing poetry, if you come at it with it has to do this or "or it's not a poem, is that you never get to your poem. You just, uh, you know, flex that one rhyme muscle and that's, that's all you've got. Uh, and it's so much more fun if you can say, I have many, many tools that will help me be a writer of poems. So that's what I always have tried to do as a teacher is to... Help people read poetry that will give them a window into that and help them try writing exercises that, you know, circumvent their nerves or their, their concerns or fears about poetry.
0: I wanted to send the same questions to to you, Michael Sauter, um, you know, as, as, as you teach, as you encounter uh, folks, especially young folks uh do you encounter any misconceptions fears and i guess the the, you know the flip side of that is as as i'm sure the switch goes on for some of these folks uh they they discover the wonder of poetry
2: uh yeah thank you uh gosh i guess i want to echo what lisa said that um about bringing different kinds of talents and different kind of natural um proclivities to your writing of poems Ben and I, you know, we're both in Logan. And so we're in a writer's group together. So I, I know Ben's poetry very well. And it's just interesting that Ben's poetry is much more aural, much more led by sound. And my poetry is much more visual. I'm much more led by the image. So I just think what Lisa is saying is really right. But, um, as far as misconceptions, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people may feel like poetry is kind of frivolous or irrelevant or whatever. And, uh, You know, but then like somebody dies or somebody gets married, you know, and then people want a poem, you know, because poems have this uh, ability to express or try to express the inexpressible. And uh, so it's just interesting. I recently, uh, my son Aiden is in his first year of college and uh, I read the Odyssey with him as he read it for the semester and i just think it's great at the end when ulysses comes back and he slays all the suitors you know he spares the poet (laughs) so i thought that's really funny in the story so (laughs) so you know i think that uh poetry has a power but it's it's a power you have to quiet yourself to tune into and uh yeah it's a great thing about teaching poetry because you know the poetry does all the work you know you just like introduce these powerful poems and students totally respond. I mean, you can't help it. So, yeah, all those things I think are true. Uh,
0: ben Gunsberg, you, uh, you have the misfortune of coming at the tail end of the same question, but what uh, what would you say about misconceptions and and um, uh, presenting to people, uh, showing
3: people what poetry can do? Uh, yeah, I think a common misconception is that a poem needs to prove a point or that a poem needs to move a, in, in only one direction. Um, the poet John Keats had this uh, you know, sort of fabulous idea that he called negative capability, which is basically being able to sort of reside comfortably in a state of uncertainty, uh, where, where sort of multiple things are coming to bear uh, on a kind of similar space. And so I think one of the challenges um, working with young younger poets is that they've been sort of conditioned uh, in their essay writing to sort of prove a point support those points with evidence and sort of move things in one direction and sort of linear logical fashion and you know the joy of poetry or what i take to be one of the joys of poetry is this ability to kind of have multiple ideas that are in some cases often times actually opposing in some way Um, so you know uh, a poem for example might both um, have elements of praise uh, and uh, a kind of a critique of something in this in the same in the same breath, like the poem that I just read about football. You know, you know, I I appreciate football. I grew up watching it. My dad played it. I played it. And so um, there's praise in there, but there's also some critique and it's comparing uh, the activity to to maybe American culture and democracy. so there's an element of critique. And so it's sometimes hard to uh, to sort of encourage students to see, hey, you can have both of those things at once and I'll say I'll say at one point you know, or another in the semester, I'll say, try writing against the grain of what you've already written in this poem. Actually actively work against what you're already saying and that that kind of conflict creates friction and energy and interest. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes that can be, that could be useful.
0: Well, we, uh, I'd love to hear another poem for each of you. Lisa Bickmore, is there another poem you could share with us?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, let me read a poem from, um, Ephemeris. It's called, After You Left, and it's set in Ireland. After you left, we crossed the river another dozen times twice in taxis, walked to a new museum, bought books, found the Mermaid Cafe, and took the train to Hoth, where the stairs up Church Street smelled of ancient urine and the abbey kept falling invisibly to ruins under a brilliant sun. It was late September. The station, with all its hurry, had chocolate and crisps to eat. I bought a magazine. At the end of this journey, we had emptied ourselves of nearly every desire. Only the West still glittered, unsought and unobtained. And you had gone home to your city of granite and further to your village. And we were alone with the Irish and the remnants of the dawn when we kissed you goodbye on St. Augustine Street, just blocks from St. Auden's and its ceiling made of clouds only hours from the last sunlight that poured like a river down the stone street. We walked to bronze and bird-stained Joyce and the black pool for which the Vikings named the city was nowhere to be found, but everywhere was the absence of you, girls skipping with paper bag and hair bow, you sitting across from me at tea, me appeasing disconsolate Evie outside the exhibit of the ancient book. We viewed Yeats's notebooks, lingered over faded signatures, and you were not there. The light was chalky, cold at the bone. Sirens brayed up the streets. Dublin would never miss you, but we, foreign, exhausted, longed for you at Haypenny Bridge. The enigmatic saint stenciled in spray paint on the door spoke your names. This would all go on, and we would disappear as the detail of a fresco altarpiece had, leaving just the outlined torso of someone once said to be holy.
0: Mm, Thank you. What's the title of that?
2: After You Left.
0: After You Left, yeah. Lisa Bickmore. Um, Michael Sautert, love to hear another of your poems.
2: Okay, So I'll read another one from uh, the collection I was talking about. And uh, in this collection, usually like, there's the letter, and then often there's a word that's found under that letter in the dictionary. And uh, so this is, uh, I don't know, I was talking about trying to express the inexpressible. So anyway, this is uh, for the letter U, fifth letter, and then the word under that letter is Ushas, goddess of dawn. I was 19, standing in the driveway before light, thinking of Emerson's words about the self. A dark blue winter southern sky sphered overhead. In a holly on the hill, a mockingbird woke, flinging grace notes, trills, chattering about the great bounty of crimson berries, I supposed. Vines heavy with dew, draped in the loblollies of the dark woods. Then sunlight shot through, and the vines burst into 10,000 prisms. I spun around, seeing gold, red, silver, blue, until something, the day, the world, my mind, my heart, broke open. Then the mockingbird flew up, singing that we would live forever, all the words written on its wings.
0: That's a poem from Michael Sader. Thank you. Uh, ben Gunsberg, mm-hmm. uh, love to hear another poem from you. Let's see. Do we, do we still have you, Ben? Yes. There, there we go. Was, yeah.
3: yeah go. Okay. So, um, yeah, so th- I loved Lisa's poem and, um, uh, this is a poem about Ireland as well. It's actually sort of an elegy to Seamus Heaney, um, the poet I mentioned before. And, um, like I said, I, I studied abroad in Ireland and, um, You know, I never met Seamus Heaney, uh, but it's in this poem, there's sort of an imagined conversation with him. And this was written uh, shortly after he died. It's called Breaking Bread. I want to flag you down, though you have left your light-filled hut, slid into Anahorish with your translator's keys and ingredients for seasoned speech. I want to fasten your lute string to my throat. Enter your museum all glittered up with Irish water, myth and politics, mimicking that bendy dialect that butter sunk under, sipping that blue cream Sweeney sipped. Listen, you say, the tall silence can't block my nimble work. I'll still get the green rain right. I'll still come when you can't sleep to thread a river through your ear to settle stones in their sockets, to smooth down the eyelid of evening. But what about the lean-lipped men down bent by prayer? What about the bearded foam, the loam and peat pocketed with bones and the brooding never to be poems wrenched from cold clod, each one ringing with your bronze bell? Listen, you say. Every line I built to be renewed. Uh, what's the title of that poem again? It's called Breaking
0: the B- Bread. Ah, okay. Wonderful. Well, let's take another break. We'll come back with our uh, last segment. Uh, we're hearing poems for the new year with uh, Utah Poet Laureate Lisa Bickmore and poets Michael Sauter and Ben Gunsberg. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, it's poetry for the new year, and we're hearing from Utah poet laureate Lisa Bickmar and poets Michael Satter and Ben Gunsberg. Um, great way to uh, to begin the year uh, early in the in the new year. Um, so, I'd love to hear uh, another poem from each of you. We'd have about six minutes left in this uh, segment, uh, so I wonder, about Lisa Bickmar, is there a you know poem on the kind of the shorter side uh, from from you? The last one.
1: I do have a short one. I made sure to choose one. Okay. Um, this, is, this is from my first book, and it's called Happiness. It's dedicated to my daughter, Abigail. As if it were a reward somehow for hope, it is a useless idea. You find it somewhere along the arc that begins at expectation that disappointment ends. If you were to predict a point on that arc at which it would be likely to occur, it probably would not be in bed on a snowy morning, with the milkman's footsteps printed on the walk, then turning away, with the tousled sheets just warm on your legs, your body deciding whether to relax into sleep or gather to rise, the baby's head turned away from you, her every breath under the quilts lifting them, with a shudder, then a sigh. Who would ever dream such a moment? as one particularly happy
0: oh thank you uh michael souter do you have a short short shortish poem you could share
2: yes can you hear me yes great uh so uh, my wife jennifer steiner also a writer she asked me to uh write a little poem for the holiday to include with our holiday letter so uh this is super short but i thought it might be good because here we are in the winter season it's called winter Over. We winter over here with juncos and chickadees, kestrels and crows, ghost hawks and northern flickers. We winter over under blue ice skies, avalanche shoots, and the brittle bones of aspens. We brave frozen streets with crampon metal, carrying our anti-lock hearts and snowflake eyes. We winter here, whispering over the embers of each other's hearts.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Ben Gunsberg, do you have a a poem you could uh, um, share with us here at the end and near the end of the program?
3: Sure. Yeah. Here's a poem called 1 800flowers.com. Cut cleanly because you're meant to forget missing roots once shipped nitrogen to paint the gaudy heights. Woozy tulips tilt toward the window like history tilts toward the present anniversary. But just as easily they decorate birthday, wake, or baby shower. Red, white, yellow, roses, stunned and stunning. Miss New Jersey mailed to Miss Missouri at any hour, for any occasion, to compliment, I love you, I'm sorry, Godspeed, my brief, and rootless beauty.
0: No, oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, well, we're do- just about the end of the, the program. I uh, just want to make sure people know where to where to where to find our uh, poets. Uh, so it's lisabickmore.com, bickmore.com, and ben um is uh, where you uh, where'd you find find these uh, folks um i think uh, on your website ben Gunsberg there's a event
3: coming up this current there's a number of events happening um through the english department um this spring uh we have uh tracy at city visiting um yeah i encourage everyone to check out the english department's websites for the most sort of updated versions of all sorts of uh, poetry events happening, at least uh, uh, through USU and in Cache Valley. There's also uh, Helicon West, which is a, a reading series that happens uh, regularly every 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 other Thursday, um, uh, which is sort of community-engaged uh, um, poetry readings and actually fiction and nonfiction as well. So yeah, all sorts of cool stuff happening.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, Michael Soder. anything you'd like to
2: plug uh, com- coming up? uh no i guess i'd just like to say that uh as far as reading poetry uh some one of my teachers told me one time to you know read the poems that you're drawn to drawn to uh not the poems you think you should read you know so just let your let yourself just be led by your own heart uh in the direction that you want to go so poetry is um you know it's a wonderful transformative Kind of mindful meditative experience that uh, it's an adventure that you can just start on on your own.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Great advice. Um, our Utah poet laureate Lisa Bickmore, what, uh, what what would you like to to highlight?
1: Well, I was fortunate to be uh, awarded an Academy of American Poets Poets Laureate Fellowship this spring, and I, I, one thing that I'm doing as poet laureate is going around the state. <laughs> working with uh, school-age kids and young people making broadsides. A broadside is a very old form for publishing all kinds of things and recently revived, recently in the last hundred or so years, revived as a a literary and artistic form. I'm working with kids to make broadsides about the Great Salt Lake, so it's writing plus image. Um, It's very exciting to me, and I already have some classrooms lined up for doing that in the new year but if anyone is a teacher and is interested in having me come and work with their students to do this project um you can find me uh <laughs> via my website all right um, and uh yeah i'm really excited about this project
0: okay the website is LisaBigmore.com. um well thanks to each of you uh, thanks uh, sincerely for you, 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 you poets really do enrich our lives thank you for what you do uh, Lisa Bickmore, thanks thank for you. Having it. And uh, thank Michael Soder Ben's Gunsbury, thanks to all. Yeah, thanks.
2: Thanks so much. Okay, see you later.
0: See you later. We'll hear uh, "Eating the Past," wonderful segment. Uh, usually here on Sundays. And uh, thanks everyone for listening to Access Utah.
4: Welcome to Utah Public Radio's "Eating the Past" and other tasty morsels a show that explores all things food.
2: Your hosts are Jeannie Sir, Jamie Sanders, Laura Gelfand, and Tammy
4: Proctor, all from Utah State University. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Eating the Past. This is host Jeannie Sir. And Laura Gelfand. And today we are deviating a bit from our past theme of dumplings, and we are going to talk about a holiday in January called Feast of the Epiphany.
5: Right. So it happens January 6th, and it is a celebration of the Magi, or the three kings, coming to Bethlehem.
4: And Laura, how does this associate with food and what is eaten at the Feast of Epiphany?
5: So the... The version of it that I'm most familiar with are the French king cakes that you see every time you're anywhere in France. I I just associate it with Paris in particular, but anywhere in France. And all over Europe, actually, there are variations on these king cakes. In France, you'd see galette de roi. So that's what they're called. And they are puff pastry that are filled with almond frangipane. They're really delicious. And then inside of them is something called a fèvre. So it's either a bean. Traditionally, it was a bean. But sometimes it's something else. Like I think the most extraordinary one that I ever had was this beautiful little porcelain object that was glazed with gold. So they can be quite opulent as well. And then they're sold with a crown, like a paper crown. And so whoever gets the fevre or whatever it is, the bean, whatever is inside of it, is the king for the day. Um, and it also means good luck. And in medieval and earlier periods, there would be a whole kind of event that would go with it. You'd have a big party. The king would get to declare who their whole court was. They get to pick a queen. They get to do all kinds of things and get really, really drunk. And so it's it's also then associated in America with Mardi Gras. So there are all these associations.
4: And that is how I know of the king cake is I have lived in Virginia. And so during Mardi Gras is where I would see king cakes being sold A bit different than the European ones. I believe the ones that I am aware of have a little baby in them. And the cakes were usually Mardi Gras colored. So purplish, green, yellows. Mm kind of spray painted look and and I think parties where people try to get the slice of cake with the baby. I don't know what you necessarily win. And my biggest fear is that you would always choke yeah. on the little baby. So yeah. that's my big fear with the king I cake. I know.
5: Well, and it's interesting because I guess they were porcelain originally mm-hmm. and then they made them plastic. And so now when you buy a king cake, you just shove the baby into it because nobody wants to eat a cake that's been baked with a plastic object Oh, yeah, that is true. It. The
4: baby comes separately, yes. and then you put it into the cake. DIY. And I guess Yeah, and I guess you would know then, at least one person would know <laughs> where the baby was, so yeah. that's maybe safer than yes. just baking it in. I think you're definitely
5: looking for it, too, right? Yes, that is true. Ch- I mean, choking on the baby would be a giant bummer.
4: Yeah, yeah. That, would, <laughs> that would ruin the holiday. For everyone,
5: uh, Yes, pretty much.
4: Um, do you know of anything else you talked about? the porcelain and the kind of opulent ones, are there any other kind of stuffings? I
5: mean, really, the bean is the really traditional one. And it's funny, um, sometimes it's an almond as well. So you see mm-hmm. those two are the most common sort of natural objects. Mm-hmm. But then in France, I've seen all sorts of different things that are used, and they're just little sort of beautiful objects that you definitely don't want to choke on if you can possibly help it.
4: Yeah, it, the almond seems a bit safer.
5: Mm-hmm. yes. Even a bean, I mean, it's not – Yes. yeah. I mean, it wouldn't do anything. If you baked it, it would just stay in there. So, yeah, that seems like a safer version of that plastic baby with its arms sticking out. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Mm, Very scary.
4: Yes. So here we don't necessarily have a king cake tradition in Utah. Are you thinking about baking a king cake?
5: I have often thought about it, and I have it saved, like the New York Times recipe saved, and it doesn't look like it's that hard to do. Um, But I was telling Jeannie earlier that I have – in France, because you can get fairly small ones – on occasion, I have eaten an entire one by myself, which is totally cheating. You get to be the king and the pig. So, yeah.
4: That sounds like my kind of king cake <laughs> celebration. It's pretty <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Laura, for sharing the king cake tradition with thank
5: us today. Thank you, Jeannie. And I hope everybody has a fantastic Feast of the Epiphany and a very happy new year.
4: Yes, and thank you for listening. And you can always find us every Sunday right before the Splendid Table at your UPR station.